Good morning, Community Bible Church. How's everyone doing this morning? I hope you're enjoying the heat. Is anyone enjoying the heat? Yes? Well, this week, this week was so hot that chickens were actually laying hard-boiled eggs. And cows were giving off evaporated milk. We're starting a new sermon series um, on Elijah and Elisha. And to, to start that series, we're going to look at the uh, reading from Luke chapter 4. If you'd like to follow along, I'll be reading our scripture today from Luke chapter 4, verse 14 to 30. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. This is the word of the Lord. Luke 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, truly, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum. Do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet... Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to the woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went his way. That's the reading of the Lord from God's word this morning. Let's invite uh, our Savior um, as we pray this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning. And Lord, we just want to invite you into our midst as we worship you today, as we look into your word, as we sing your praises. Lord, we know that you have, have told us where two or more gather together in your name that you are here, Lord. We know you're here, and we want to praise your name this morning. Thank you for the beautiful time of summertime here in the Berkshires. Thank you for each person who's here in attendance this morning. I ask that each individual, each individual here this morning, would be encouraged, would be blessed from the teaching of your word. And Lord, I also ask that you would use us to encourage each other here this morning by hearing each other sing praises to you, by speaking encouraging words, by just giving a warm hello. 
Lord, you are worthy of our praise, and we want to praise you this morning. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Creator, our Sustainer. Amen. Amen. What a great day in the Berkshires. It's good to see everyone. And uh, we are starting a new series this morning entitled Spiritual Power. If there's one thing that we as Christians need is God's power living in us and working through us. We have been called to a supernatural lifestyle. The the lifestyle of the Christian uh, requires nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and giving us the grace to love, to forgive, to um, exemplify Christ in every way to the world around us and to our own families as well. So we are going to be looking at what it means to be full of the Spirit of God as we are empowered for the ways that God uses us in ministry in our own particular gifts. Um, And to that end, we're going to be looking at uh, two particular examples of power in prophets Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament in the weeks to come. And this morning, it's going to be um, uh, referred to in our passage. We'd like to begin by looking at the person of Jesus Christ and the power that God demonstrated through his own son as the basis for our own spiritual life and power. So um, I'd like us to take our Bibles again and turn to Luke chapter 4. And I'm going to be looking at verses 14 through 30 in particular. In this passage, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. And it says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. I'd like this to consider first off that the power of Christ that we all need to reside and live in us originates, is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. In this passage, Jesus is returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, having been baptized by John in the Jordan. You might remember that John said, I baptize you with water. There is one who is coming, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. In other words, what I'm doing is just a precursor. It's an example. It's a representation of what Christ is going to do in reality. And we know that Christ said to his disciples after, as he was ascending to heaven, he said, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the descent of the Spirit to come upon you. And you will receive power to be my witnesses. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus would baptize us 
in the Holy Spirit. Leading up to our passage today, we see that Jesus had been led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And he had exhibited that same power and authority over Satan. Unlike Adam, the first Adam, Jesus responded to Satan's temptations with the word of God. After 40 days of fasting, the spirit comes to him at his most vulnerable point, as he does to all of us when we are down. And he says, if you be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He takes him to a pinnacle of the temple and he says, if you are the son of God, cast yourself down for it says in scripture. He will give charge to his angels so that you won't dash your foot against and Jesus responds. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And he takes him to a high mountain and he says, look down. All this I promise I will give to you if you but worship me. To which Jesus says, shall worship the Lord your God and serve only him. All the world was Christ to begin with, wasn't it? He spoke and brought all things into existence. Things that were not came forth because he was the word through whom all things were created. And in Colossians, we learn that Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. That all things were made by him and through him and for him. And that all of history is summed up in Christ. So Satan lies and tries to deceive. But Jesus, unlike the first Adam, he responds with the word of God. The power of Christ is exhibited in Christ. And then he attends this wedding in Cana, right? And his mother says to him, Jesus, they're out of wine. He says, well, bring me the six pots you have, 20 to 30 gallons of water each held. And what does he do? He turns it into the finest wine that the head waiter had ever tasted. Some serve the best first, but you keep the best for the end. Again, a picture of Christ who comes in the fullness of times. God sends forth his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law to himself, the finest of wine. You see the power of Jesus, the authority of Jesus when he chooses his disciples. What does he say to Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel? You follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I've just promoted you. You will powerfully draw people to the kingdom of God. And then he cleanses the temple. Does he do that with timidity and fear? No. With zeal and with anger. He says, you shall not turn my father's house into a place of merchandise. And he makes a cord and turns over the tables because zeal for his father's house had consumed him. That's authority. People weren't used to that kind of authority and power. 
demonstrated in a person. And when Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, a respected and honored man, comes to Jesus at night, what does he say? Nicodemus, you, a teacher of the law, you do not understand these things? What's wrong? You must be born again. He doesn't make suggestions. He cuts to the heart. And he tells him his problem, and he tells him the cure. And then as he wanders through Samaria, and he comes to this well where this woman is drawing water, what does he say to her? Go get your husband's, your husband. She goes, I don't have any. He says, you're right when you say you don't because you've had five and the one you're living with now is not your husband. And what does she do? She freaks out. She runs into the village and she says, let me show you. Let me introduce you to the man who told me everything about myself. Could this not be the Messiah? The one the scriptures talked about. He knows because he's God. He's authoritative and powerful. And then he's attested to by the Father himself as he's baptized by John. What does that voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, it's with authority and power that Jesus conducted his ministry. He returns to Galilee in power. That's the same power, friends, that raised him from the dead. And it is the same power that Paul prays would reside in us. That power that raised Christ from the dead transforms our lives, enables us to overcome and to live out the life of Christ. The power of God resides in the person and identity of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want you to consider that the power of God advances the kingdom of Christ. So he enters into his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he takes up the scroll and he begins to read from Isaiah, the prophet. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he says something that's just mind boggling. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. Imagine that. What's he saying? They had been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. And now he claims to be in their presence. Where did Jesus' power originate? He says, the Spirit of God is upon me. It is the Holy Spirit who embellished, empowered Christ. In Christ dwelt all the fullness of God in bodily form. He was anointed by God. He was set apart for this one purpose, anointed for a mission to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel we have partaken in, right? Been recipients of, blessed, because what does he say? 
to preach the gospel to the poor. That's to you and me. We were poor. We recognized our need. That's why we're here today. Not proud, but poor in spirit. Realizing that we are broken. That what Christ says about us is true. That we need to repent, assuming we are sinners. Having fallen short of the glory of God and the perfection of God. We all fail to live up to the standards revealed in God's character, in his laws, in the person of Christ. We fail utterly in thought, in word, and in deed. Things that we do that we shouldn't, things that we don't do that we should. Every day we're faced with our own sin, falling short of that mark of holiness. What does Jesus say? Repent. Turn from your sins. And believe. What? Do we believe? That Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That when he says, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. Feed on me. When he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he says, I'm the light of the world. Let me shine on you. Receive him. Believe that he's your Messiah, that he died on the cross for your sins. Invite him into your life as your Savior. Know that only Christ can forgive you from your sins. This is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed with power wherever he went. What did he proclaim? Release to the captives. We were all held in bondage to sin. All of us. We were under that bondage. We were in bondage to fear and to pride and, and to lust and to greed and to all those things that are subject that to the human, the human race is subject to. We're bound. Christ came to proclaim release to captives. <sighs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Christ came to provide recovery of sight to the blind. Do you remember before you were a Christian that you didn't really understand what this was about? You tried hard to be good enough for God or there was some other complicated understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. But then all of a sudden your eyes were opened and you understood the simplicity of the gospel. That by faith in Jesus Christ you could be born anew. Even a child can experience that salvation and understand enough to receive Christ as their Savior. Your sight was restored. Jesus said to those who were listening to him, you have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Now listen, verily, verily, I say unto you, listen, you must be born again. And he came to set free those who were oppressed. Oppressed is something from the outside. The Bible tells us that we all are oppressed by the evil one. That the God of this age blinds the eyes of those who are perishing, lest they see the truth in Christ and be set free. We were all in that situation, bound by the God of this age. But he has set us free from demonic control 
And then he says he, pro- he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. And to his listeners, this was great news because the year of Jubilee in the Jewish mindset was the year when all things were restored and set free. It was the Sabbath of Sabbaths. They rested on the seventh day. They rested every seven years and the ground remained fallow. And then on the 50th year, all those who had gotten themselves into debt, had sold themselves into bondage, had sold their land. Everything was restored and they were to rest the entire year as a picture of the coming Messiah, that salvation is resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is indeed a year of jubilee when you come to Jesus Christ, is it not? There is nothing you can do to earn that salvation. It comes by faith and dependence upon Jesus Christ, and it sets us free. But let me say this to you. Though our salvation is complete in Christ, and though he has liberated us and set us free, though he has delivered us from oppression, we still struggle, don't we, daily to overcome, to enter into the liberty that is given to us in Jesus Christ. And we will continue throughout our lives until we see Christ to experience that fullness of the liberty and salvation that we have. That's the part of sanctification that we all experience. But to the degree that we enter into this by faith, we find the joy complete. The power of God sets us free. Jesus exhibited that power through the gospel. The power of God draws people to Jesus. What is the people's reaction? It says, and he was praised by all in verse 15. And all the eyes were fixed upon him. We read in 21. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? They're pleased with Jesus. They're amazed by Jesus. Their mouths are hanging open. Is this the one who has come to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah? Is he the one who will set us free? And then they remember his connection. This is Joseph's son, the carpenter's son, the the guy who's, you know, just a common folk, not, not high on the social economic status Could he be the Messiah? Is it possible? Jesus has their attention. They're all looking to him, and certainly that should be our goal as his children, to enter into focusing eyes upon Christ. And then the power of God enables the messenger to speak the truth. Even when the truth hurts. So here is Jesus. All eyes are fixed on him. People are saying wonderful things about him. And, you know, if I were there, I would say, okay, Jesus, stop. Stop all your heads. That's good. Don't don't say any more. This is a good time to exit and to go on your way. But instead, Jesus speaks the gospel to them in that place. And the gospel, the truth hurts. He says to them, you're going to quote this proverb to me. 
Physician, heal yourself. It's a reference to the crucifixion, right? He's looking way on ahead, probably three years ahead, and he's saying, this is what I'm going to hear from the cross. Yeah, I'm going to be in so much agony that I'm going to barely be able to hear, but I'm going to know that you're saying this. You're ridiculing me and scoffing me, and you're going to be saying, you healed others. Why don't you heal yourself if you are who you say you are? Because you still won't understand what the Messiah is about. Then you will say to me, what you did in Capernaum, do for us here. Put on a show for us. Help us to believe that you are who you claim to be, Jesus. What had he done in Capernaum? Well, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. A lot of demoniacs and people who were afflicted with diseases. He stilled the storm. He healed the paralytic who was let down through the roof. He did a lot of things that Capernaum. They wanted a show in Nazareth. But he could do nothing in Nazareth. He chose to do nothing. In fact, Mark 6 says he could do no miracle there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And Matthew says, and he did no did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So Jesus turns up the heat. See, he recognizes what they're thinking. As God, he's seeing their doubts growing. This is Joseph's son, right? He can't be the Messiah. And then he says, you know what God did way back 800 years ago when Elijah and Elisha were alive? Was there not a great drought, a famine in the land? For three and a half years, God shut the windows of heaven and the people suffered. And Elijah needed some relief himself. And so he sent him to this other place called Sidon to this woman, this widow of Zarephath, to find help for him. And there she is out collecting some wood to build a fire to make her final meal for her and her young son before she faces the ultimate reality that they're going to die. And Elijah says, excuse me, lady, uh, before you do that, make me a little cake and a little pitcher of water, please. Oh, and if you do that, your bowl of flour and your jar of oil will never run out until this famine is over. (laughs) What does she do with that? Okay. I guess. Why not? She exhibits faith. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. There are a lot of widows in Israel that didn't benefit from that. But this woman outside the family of Israel experienced deliverance. And what about Nahum, this captain of the army of Aram, a very prominent, honorable man? He had leprosy. And Jesus says, weren't there a lot of lepers in Israel? They didn't get healed. But Nahum, who has this little servant girl, this Israeli servant girl in his house, speaks to him and says, hey, I know that there's a prophet in Israel who can probably heal you. His name happens to be Elisha. What does Nahum do? He believes. 
And he makes arrangements and goes to Elijah. And Elijah says, okay, if you really want to be healed, go to that dirty river called the Jordan and dip seven times. You're going to get clean by dipping in the dirty waters of the Jordan. And furthermore, Elijah didn't even come out to talk to him. He sent his servant. It was not at all what Nahum had expected, what what he had anticipated. But his servant says, hey, if he would have given you something very difficult to do, wouldn't you have done it? Of course. Well, this is pretty easy. So what do you got to lose? And on the seventh time, as he comes out of the water, his flesh is like that of a baby restored to wholeness. He experienced the benefit of faith, both he and the widow of Zarephath, because they believed even though they weren't members of the household of Israel, God's grace extends beyond to those who have faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. A wonderful picture of God's grace extending to the Gentile world, right? Of which we are benefits, beneficial, beneficiaries. Yes, We have benefited greatly from this grace. What a great God we have. And so those who then were looking upon Jesus with their mouths open in amazement, wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips, now are turning red with rage. Because what has he done? He's just insulted them, telling them that they don't have the faith that they need to be saved. And so instead of exalting him, they're ready to take him out to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. Their response was not what it should have been, right? This is when you say, you're right, Jesus, I repent from my lack of faith. I repent from being so hardened in my heart. For rejecting you. This is when you repent. This is not what you do in the vein of Cain, who when his brother's sacrifice is accepted, you decide to get rid of your brother. This is when you change your heart. There is opposition to the gospel. There will always be opposition to the gospel because it rubs us wrong. It tells us who we are. It puts a mirror up to our souls and reveals what is truly there. But that's not a hopeless situation. That's just a painful situation. Address the pain and move on. Christ is met with opposition. And we can expect opposition as well. As we faithfully carry out our role as ambassadors in this world, we will face opposition. People will want to take us, so to speak, to the brow of the hill and push us off. So they don't have to hear this voice. They don't have to see this life. What life do they want to snuff out? They want to snuff out the life of Christ. And what was that life like? He healed the sick. He wept over those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He raised the dead. He extended a hand to all in need. He preached the gospel that would give them hope of eternal life. We too, my friends, 
are to be instruments of righteousness in this world. To extend the love of Christ to everyone around us. And for that, there are many who will not respond well to. Peter tells us, do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So even to those who are in opposition to us, we are to exhibit that power and authority that's centered in the gospel in Jesus Christ with gentleness and reverence for those who oppose us. So what happens when they take him to the brow of the hill? Jesus turns and he faces his foe. And he looks at them. And I think that was probably quite enough to disarm them. And then he quietly walks through their midst as they part and let him pass. When the gospel offends those who hear, when it disturbs or angers, we must not apologize for it. We must not change the message or dilute the message or be intimidated to silence. We must simply continue to love. And when the crowd does not receive us, to move on. Because Christ has told us that the fields are white unto harvest. He is preparing hearts to receive him as his Savior, as their Savior. It is our responsibility to be faithful. Where does our spiritual power come from? It rests in the person of Jesus Christ. It is given to further the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that has changed our lives and is changing us is the gospel we share with those who are lost. We bring people to Jesus and we introduce them to our Savior. It's not about us and building our reputation or our kingdom. It's about bringing people to Christ. We speak truth, even when that truth hurts, because we love. We speak through tears. And we should expect opposition as we push on. Every one of us has been anointed to preach the gospel Every man, woman, and child has been set apart by God. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, your call is to proclaim Christ. Your call is to be sent to release those who are in bondage, to minister sight to those who are blind, to set free those who are in bondage, oppressed, and to proclaim that new covenant that we have rest and freedom in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, I don't really know Christ yet as my Savior, today's the day. Receive Him by faith in your heart. Know that Christ died for your sins. Invite Him to be your Savior. He will not refuse you. And if you're here as a believer, be encouraged that your power, your authority, rests in the person of Christ. You are inseparably linked to him. He is your strength. He is your purpose. He is your message. He is your deliverance. Please stand now for the benediction.
Jesus said to his disciples as he was ascending into heaven, all power, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen. Go in peace.